Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. On this podcast, we welcome Shama Ams, a scholar from Cambridge University and a Marshall Scholar who has been conducting the most fascinating research into the over one million African-American soldiers who served fighting fascism during the Second World War. But Shama's findings are disturbing, to say the least, because although these soldiers were fighting Nazism, they came back to an America that was still segregated and they were targeted as veterans for racist terror lynchings. Shammer's in-depth research provides us with a lens through which we can analyse that post-1945 world, but also the more contemporary events of Black Lives Matter and the killing of George Floyd in the United States. Hi, Shama. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, James. Glad to be here. Now, I was in Montgomery, Alabama over MLK Day this year, and I saw tributes to the famed Tuskegee Airmen who escorted US bombers in Europe and they engaged in combat all over Sicily, in Italy, and in Germany as well. But over the years that I've been studying the Second World War, I've come across disturbing accounts of how the 1.2 million African-American troops who fought in the US forces against fascism, were treated by their own comrades and their government during the war. And I know this is your area of research. So how did systematic racism manifest itself during this wartime period? Well, James, uh, thanks uh, so much for bringing up this topic and inviting me to speak on it. Uh, indeed, I have covered this topic in my research on civil wars, focusing specifically on the US Civil War, and indeed, since the U.S. Civil War in the 19th century, it's my claim that wars in the U.S. have inescapably been intertwined with the country's racial politics. And the Second World War was no exception. And so I think in responding to your question, I think there are kind of three points that I would like to highlight within that. And I think within that sort of thematic scheme, I'll kind of go through some of the history associated with the racial politics that manifested in the Second World War when it came to those soldiers returning back home. But the first one I just mentioned, and the second one is that basically the weight of national hypocrisy associated with the civil rights movement was keenly felt during the Second World War uh, in the U.S. And then the last thing is that 
the relationship between the treatment of African-American soldiers in the aftermath of World War II has contemporary effects on how the African-American community relates to the state and the present moment. And so just going back to the first question, how wars in the U.S. have been inescapably tied to the country's racial politics, if I were to sort of try to contextualize what happened in the Second World War from the nature of the Civil War, because I think the Civil War basically represented a critical juncture in which the country's troubling racial history and the narrative surrounding that, which had been bubbling underneath the surface. And if you look at documents about the Founding Fathers, you know, Madison and some of the others, Hamilton, even Benjamin Franklin had some things to say about this, that there was an uneasiness surrounding the question of slavery that eventually manifested itself in the 1860s during the Civil War. And since then, there has been this very acute awareness in the U.S. about this sort of stark contrast between the very exceptional values that, well, in the U.S. we consider to be exceptional values, but in principle, they're just basic values surrounding human rights and dignity and fair treatment across the board, and what actually happens in practice, which has been quite, in practice, quite discriminatory. So in the context of the Second World War, what we saw was that, as you mentioned, people, including the Tuskegee Airmen and others who fought valiantly, against Nazism, against fascism, against all sorts of forms of a totalitarianism and authoritarianism across various theaters of war in Europe and elsewhere around the world, Asia, etc. And they did so under the principle of trying to advance human rights, trying to provide human dignity around the world, trying to basically give an image of what the world could look like outside of what was becoming an increasingly prevalent strain of authoritarianism and dictatorship that was spreading like wildfire around the world that caused this global cataclysmic struggle. So embedded in this rhetorical struggle to persuade hearts and minds around the world about the benefits of free and open societies predicated on democratic capitalism, there was this sort of nagging internal problem that hadn't gone away for decades since the Civil War, almost a century passed since the 1860s that had still manifested itself within the context of the U.S. How is it possible that the U.S. could sort of combat Nazism predicated on theories of white supremacy and still in the Jim Crow South very much have white supremacy alive and well? And these are some of the challenges that I kind of grapple with in my research. And I think it's true in as much as, for example, that the U.S. military is comprised of the population Although in the contemporary context in the U.S., it's representing, unfortunately, I think, a shrinking portion of the U.S. population. But at the same time, you see that as an institution, the U.S. military has sometimes become quite progressive and has had a progressive streak. If you think about, for example, the 1940s, 1948, Harry Truman abolishes discrimination in the U.S. armed forces. And that was six years before the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Brown versus Board of Education. And so you see that there's this ebb and flow, which is also quite characteristic of the U.S. since the Civil War and indeed during the Second World War, that as the U.S. is confronting these challenges surrounding this tension that has emerged between its outward face to the world and its internal face, it's also having to sort of deal with that. And as it deals with that, for practical purposes, it winds up sort of moving the needle a bit slowly, often painfully. And you see that reflected in some of those changes that you see in 1948, for example, and in other instances. But while it took place during the Second World War, 
there were so many instances of discrimination, and it reached a point where often African Americans would describe the plight of the situation as even worse than the way uh, prisoners of war were being treated from Germany and elsewhere. One black journalist, for example, made the note that it made little sense, quote, for a black man being killed fighting a yellow man for the protection of a white man. So, you know, you can see some of these themes emerging. Actually, there was a poll taken in 1942 that suggests that most African-Americans in Harlem thought that they would be treated better or at least no worse under Japanese rule. And for their part, the Japanese had claimed that they were fighting against the forces of colonization. And that was quite a powerful sentiment, quite a persuasive sentiment that African-Americans could identify with because they felt like they were being colonized in their own country. And you can see this kind of theme emerging from the very beginning of the country, from the foundation of the U.S. that wound up playing itself out in the 1930s, where there was this really exigent need to actually have a coherent national narrative surrounding what democracy looks like to the world. But unfortunately, it was deeply flawed. And as it happens, the Axis powers took full advantage of this. So apart from, you know, some of the other narratives that you would hear African-Americans talk about surrounding Hitler's treatment of the Jews and making that connection to the way Jim Crow was administered in the South, there were military officers that complained about being treated like animals. And there were others who mentioned that it's not really clear what benefit there is that the state is providing them, given that they're sacrificing life and limb to save democracy in different theaters across the world. And I guess just to kind of highlight the point about the Axis powers, as I mentioned, how they sort of took advantage of this conundrum and this challenge for the U.S. and exploiting the racial violence that took place. There was an example of Cleo Wright, who was lynched in the U.S., and within minutes, the details were spread around the world to non-white listeners, saying that allies, once they win the Second World War, that would be the treatment that they would face. And this was kind of broadcast to all the regions across Asia, across Europe, and Africa, where various theaters of war in which the Second World War concerned. And the effect of this stark geopolitical challenge associated with this hypocrisy was that from Roosevelt, from FDR, all the way to Truman, and even Kennedy and Eisenhower, there was this awareness that there needed to be a reckoning on this question if they are going to maintain the moral high ground necessary to, one, persuade hearts and minds to believe in democratic capitalism, and two, to maintain a united front that can keep the coherence across all of the different theaters of war, and to have the allies fall in line. Because if you can't keep the integrity of your own message and the purpose for which you're fighting this war, it's very hard to convince others, even your friends, that what you're doing is worth it and that you have the credibility to carry it out. So when it came to Roosevelt, basically, I think in response to sort of the calls from African-Americans coming back home in the Second World War that had been mistreated and seeing their rights denied, they, he ordered federal investigations of all lynchings. Now, for those audiences that may not be aware, a lynching is basically an organized killing or assault of an African-American. Typically, it was done oftentimes by members of the Ku Klux Klan, but others were often involved. And what it would involve is that typically it would mean someone was hung on a tree and it was a public spectacle. So it was a public execution, almost like a medieval public execution. And the problem was that with these lynchings, when you had all-white juries, it's impossible or a very unlikely at best 
for there to be a conviction or even a sentencing or any kind of acknowledgement of what took place to that person. So there was unfortunately an uptick in lynchings as African-American soldiers and service members came back from the Second World War. So Shama, that's fascinating and disturbing. Are you saying that as African-American veterans came back from fighting for their country, they were targeted in racist terror lynchings in the South in America? That's right. And I think the reason why this happened was that because the administration, both Roosevelt, Truman and others, but particularly during the Roosevelt administration, the hypocrisy associated with the U.S. not reconciling the kind of Jim Crow realities with their image abroad was really pushing the administrations to try to deal with these things in concrete ways. And among those things were sort of investigations that were done, but, you know, other gestures that were made by the Roosevelt administration to acknowledge these challenges and to provide more human rights to service members coming back from war. And you would see also these service members joining the NAACP and becoming more politically active. And obviously, you know, as people who've risked life and limb to fight on behalf of the U.S., they felt emboldened to demand that their rights were protected. And so this has unfortunately been a trend over the course of U.S. history that as African-Americans feel emboldened to try to actuate the rights that were inscribed in the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, there was a subsequent backlash on the part of conservatives and particularly those that represent the former Confederacy to sort of try to tamp that down and put them back in their place. And that's unfortunately what we saw in the aftermath of the Second World War. There was no degree of valor or patriotism that could protect them from their status as black, unfortunately. And that's also a thematic problem that we wind up seeing reverberate into the present day and throughout time. If I could just segue, one of the most famous and iconic African-American boxers in the context of the Vietnam War, when he decided to conscientiously object to serving, you know, at the time it was because he did it for religious reasons, but he also had moral reasons and political reasons for not doing that. One of the sentiments he echoed was that the Viet Cong didn't call him an N-word. And in the reality is that in the U.S., the treatment of African-Americans was not commensurate to what the rights that they had been promised in the U.S. Constitution said that they would be entitled to. And therefore, the prospect of trying to fight in wars to try to defend values that didn't seem very real to them was always tricky. And so that was definitely a challenge in the 60s and 70s. It was a challenge in the context of the Second World War that we're discussing now. And I think part of the reason why that is is because it relates to the notions that go deeper than just the philosophy of the U.S. that concerns this social order surrounding white supremacy and what grounds the nature of those who decided to break away from the U.S., so the underlying ideas that motivated them to leave to have slavery. And why was slavery in existence? Because people believe that they can own individuals and, and that those people don't have rights. And I think that's the same thinking that goes into expecting that people coming back from war, serving the country, defending its values, defending its territory, thinking that these individuals don't have rights either, that their primary status is their blackness or their color rather than their character, as as I rather cliched Martin Luther King had said, you know, not the content of their character that matters, but the color of their skin. 
But that in itself is such an important point here, because from your research, it sounds like an emboldened civil rights movement emerges out of this mistreatment of the Second World War. Do we know how African-American veterans felt about coming back from deployments in Europe, where arguably they could have even been treated slightly better than they were in the deep south of the United States? Was there resentment about coming home? Yes, there was. There was deep resentment about coming home. Oftentimes, it's well documented that African-American soldiers in theaters across Europe were treated well, much better. They were given respect for the valor and the courage with which they fought against Nazis and fascist elements. And actually, it's not just the fact that they were treated better in Europe, but that when they came back, the soldiers from elsewhere, so German soldiers and other soldiers from the Axis powers, were treated often better than African-Americans who were not themselves prisoners of war. And that is another discrepancy. It's another divergence in this notion that, one, that citizenship isn't really the same, that the citizenship, the rights and what it means isn't guaranteed to all. Two, that the nature of service on behalf of a country, like in the context of the United States, is a one-way street. This was a message that was given to African-Americans, that you must sacrifice life and limb to defend American interests and to liberate Europe from fascism and from totalitarianism. But there is no guarantee that you will be protected from those elements of totalitarianism and extrajudicial killing and dehumanization when you come back home. And actually, those combatants who fought to create a world of authoritarianism and dictatorship would be treated much better than you would be as an African-American representing the U.S. So there was indeed a lot of resentment, and I think that led to the strong activism that was put on display throughout the aftermath of the Second World War, where African-Americans coming back from war would participate in the political process, historic rates, There was a significant uptick in membership enrollment in the NAACP. And unfortunately, again, as has been the case in past periods of significant activism on the part of African-Americans, as they grew in influence, as they began to affect political administrations from FDR onto Eisenhower and Kennedy, there was a backlash. This brings to mind, actually, an interview that we did whilst we were researching for our last episode on History Hit for our Untold Weapons of War series. We were looking into the experiences of prisoners of war, and in America, it was discovered by one of our researchers that it was African-American soldiers who had come back from fighting who were actually put in certain situations to wait on Nazi officers. And it's this sort of thing that helps illustrate, I think, the point that you're making here. I mean, just the level of the resentment that generates, the place that that puts you in a society that you're meant to have defended and are meant to be a core and integral part of. And then it ties into this point that you say about how Axis powers in the war had latched on to this obvious racial segregation, the many accounts of racist terror lynchings. And then you say, after the war, the targeting of veterans. One thing that I want to ask you here is, how did that message, which was broadcast around the world of American shame in the way it treated its own people, did that get back to American soldiers themselves, African-American veterans, and those back into the United States? Yes, I think so. I think the evidence suggests that the Axis powers were not shy about broadcasting the obvious hypocrisy that was demonstrated by the U.S. when it came to the African-American community. 
and they took full advantage of that in broadcasts across the developing world and elsewhere. But African Americans were acutely aware of this. They saw it, the contrast themselves, having returned from war and being treated better, as we've talked about before. But they also bore witness to broadcasts that were made by Axis powers. They were aware that this was definitely a significant weakness that the Axis powers were exploiting from the U.S. And I think that was part of the reason why they had such a persuasive narrative in their advocacy for successive political administrations in this period. Because even if the political situation was such that dealing with the racial politics was fraught, there was definitely very clear need to deal with the exigencies of war. And that required cleaning up this narrative, at least to a credible degree, providing some integrity from the U.S. surrounding what it actually tries to convey to the world and what it is actually dealing with on the ground. And so I think that success in pushing FDR and Kennedy and, and Truman and Eisenhower and others, part of the reason why that was so successful was because there was this strong need to have this work from a geopolitical standpoint that was inescapable. And even the Southern backlash wouldn't be able to prevent that sort of political calculation from taking hold. Um, I think that's kind of what drove that. And I think skillfully and very keenly aware of what was going on, these African-American veterans got embedded in the political process and they definitely helped to shape this narrative, definitely highlighting this contrast and pointing out that this was a national security vulnerability. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. That's a really interesting point there about this being a national security vulnerability as well. How great powers around the world would see this as a real gap in the American armor here. Something to latch onto and use as leverage against the United States. Do you see any echoes from this history in the world in which we live in today? 
Yeah, I think the echoes are quite profound. And the one thing that I think has been quite striking in the contemporary effects of how this is manifested, and I think the way it relates to some of the recent issues surrounding police brutality and the international response and solidarity, has actually been the extent to which the United States, its international value still carries throughout the world, for good and for ill. That even if people don't necessarily buy that the U.S. is an untarnished bastion of freedom and you know, human rights, they still care. And they still care about the idea of the U.S. doing that. And they care about there being consistency. And I think that also suggests that there is an underlying acknowledgement of the potential of the U.S. that has always kind of ebbed and flowed over time. But specifically, I think when I thought about this example in terms of the contemporary effects I thought of George Floyd, and George Floyd wasn't a veteran, but I think the international response to his murder on the part of the police officers, I think, shows this idea that I was describing a little bit before about this eternal struggle in the U.S. between its international image and the needs to try to maintain a coherent narrative and rhetoric around the world to advance its geopolitical interests and then its inherent limitations at home. And George Floyd's murder, I think, really sort of ignited waves of protests, but also it ignited a striking amount of international solidarity that I think is predicated on the U.S. still having this sort of role, people still acknowledging that the U.S. does have this implicit role around the world of maintaining some degree of human rights, that there is a standard of human rights that the U.S. should be held accountable for. And I think that shows that there is a consequence associated with putting forward a narrative of human rights for decades and decades, and that being etched into your sort of founding documents, but also into your image around the world. So that's sort of the international view on it. I think that's how it relates. I think domestically, it also relates the way veterans were treated in the aftermath of the Second World War. Because one thing I didn't mention before was that there was often sometimes tension between these veterans returning home and local police departments. Because the way the federal system in the U.S. works is that there is one set of rules, you know, obviously that has sort of supreme jurisdiction from the federal government. But then the local governments and um, jurisdictions will also have control over states and, and municipalities, etc. And the police fall within mostly the local jurisdictions. And the problematic issue in the 1930s and 40s, in this instance, on the part of veterans, is that if they were returning home into the South in those jurisdictions that were controlled by Jim Crow, they wouldn't have the benefit of FDR's desegregation ban in the armed service. I mean, obviously, in the armed services, they would have that benefit, but they would still have to be, if they're living, for example, in Georgia, they would still be in a segregated state. And what this means, how that sort of echoes into the contemporary context, is that while the U.S. may have certain international and sort of federal geopolitical concerns that make it need to push toward a progressive stint at a kind of federal national level, on the local level, that sometimes becomes a problem. And indeed, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of these incidents surrounding unarmed black men getting shot are involved with not federal officers like FBI agents, but instead are involved with local police departments. That's a kind of a topic in itself about, you know, militarized police, et cetera, and the drift between the police and the military, et cetera, for a variety of reasons I think that we talk a little bit about in the article. But I, I think when it comes to this contemporary effects of GIs, 
I think it does reflect that there remains this discrepancy. And even while GIs come back into their communities, the state winds up interacting with them in a violent manner. And it doesn't sort of acknowledge their service. It doesn't acknowledge, you know, their sacrifice. But unfortunately, from the standpoint of the police, the legacies of Jim Crow and the sort of thematic influences of white supremacy that predicated the Civil War wind up finding expression at the sort of epicenter in which it was manifested in the first place in local and state jurisdictions. Because it was local and state jurisdictions that created the conditions for segregation and slavery in the part of the Confederacy. It was the local and state jurisdictions that, on behalf of that sovereignty, that there was the desire to fight against the Union and ultimately break away illegally from the Union. And it was the local and state jurisdictions that decided to maintain segregation throughout the Civil Rights era and indeed throughout the Second World War. And now it's the local and state jurisdictions that are visiting violence upon African-Americans indiscriminately, those who are not armed or that don't pose any threat to the police. And African-American veterans would be no exception to this. I think the last point I'll make on this is this drift in the current administration, the Trump administration, toward authoritarianism. And I think that has paralleled drifts, I think, on the part of local police becoming more militarized for a variety of reasons, but also the consolidation of power in the hands of the federal government and that interacting with political alignment associated with local jurisdictions. And I think that an interesting challenge will be the role of the military in being able to buffer against these kinds of political influences from the Trump administration that tends to ignore a lot of these issues surrounding race and surrounding police brutality and using now the military to try to tamp down protests and whether the military will go along with being used as political props as they had been in Washington, D.C., where they were involved in tear-gassing protests in that way. So I think all of these sort of dimensions of race and the federal system in the U.S., but also of the military, do overlap, and the processes through which they've evolved over time do wind up affecting each other. And I think that's how it has particularly manifested itself internally in the U.S. And internationally, I think it's manifested itself by demonstrating that this tension in the U.S. has remained quite profound. And in the same way that in the 1930s, Axis powers were broadcasting instances where African Americans were lynched around the world to demonstrate American hypocrisy, so too is it the case that you know those protesting uh, on the streets of Seoul to Syria and around the world, these solidarity protests also echo in the public consciousness surrounding the tension that the U.S. has between its purported values and the way it treats its own. This sounds like it's a systemic issue that hasn't been cured yet. You mentioned, of course, straight after the Second World War, as this continues and spurs movements within the civil rights activists, and then continues on into Vietnam. And by the sounds of it, it's a problem that America still hasn't solved. It gets me thinking about the increased militarization of the police in the United States. And of course, you've mentioned them there, especially at a state and a local level. But there's also a lot of veterans that go into the police. Is there perhaps a link between the continued racist violence in the United States perpetrated by police officers and the militarization of the police and the high proportion of veterans in the police? 
Yes, I, I think there is. I think there is enough evidence to support that. Basically, the claim is that there is kind of a worrying drift on the part of local police departments in the direction of the military in terms of affecting the culture, but also practices and procedures, rules of engagement. And there was already a challenge, I think, in the training in policing that tended to be violent, I would say, by most standards. You know, people sometimes make the argument that, well, the police are particularly violent or particularly um, intense in the U.S. because there is a high proliferation of guns. But I think the training is also a big part of it. And I think the police, unfortunately, have been trained to not really de-escalate things or to the extent that they do de-escalate things, there is definitely a racial bias associated with that. And I think that has been very much related to the increased, not just militarization of police, but the increased number of service members that wind up becoming police officers after they retire. The challenge I have with this idea is that I don't want to sort of just characterize the situation as both service members and police officers are bad people. They're not. They're doing a difficult job. They're doing dangerous jobs. And I think that's worth acknowledging. But I think it helps the police to think of better ways to interact with their local community better ways for them to establish rapport and to revive the reputation that they've had for being overly violent in the case of the United States and often for justified reasons. I think when you see video footage of countless African-Americans being shot, often running away in the opposite direction of police officers and still being shot many times, you think, where is the common sense? And one could say that maybe when you're thinking about the rules of engagement in war, that's much different. You know, when, when you're dealing with the threats of enemy combatants that are armed and dangerous and you don't know what threats they might have, and even legally, the laws of armed conflict are much different than the constitutional rights that are available and afforded to Americans. And, I mean, that's obviously a topic in itself, and international lawyers will, will say that there shouldn't be a discrepancy, and obviously there shouldn't. But to the extent that there is this drift from the military and the practices and the codes of conduct and the rules of engagement, but also in terms of personnel, I think the culture has even become more violent than it was, uh, which was already worryingly so. And I think the data can back it up, because actually there's been some data to suggest that among those service members who become police officers, there is a higher likelihood that they'll use their firearm and that they'll resort to violence on the job than those who haven't served. And that applies to both those who've been in theaters of combat in the U.S. military and those who haven't served in theaters of combat. So I think that's definitely a challenge that I think needs to be grappled with. And in the U.S. context, it's really difficult because sometimes it's been pointed out that there is a significant problem surrounding employment for veterans. And I think it makes sense for veterans, for example, to become police officers because there is a great deal of overlap in the skill set required. But I think there is very much a high need for these individuals who are coming from that context to reframe the way they understand the rules of engagement, the procedures, etc. And while there are certain positive elements surrounding, you know, discipline and command and autonomy, there are some other elements surrounding what, it, what constitutes a threat and other sorts of notions that are embedded in combat rules of engagement that don't and shouldn't apply in a domestic context, in a civilian context. 
And I think the more we can make the police more civilian and less military, the better. And I think, unfortunately, the incentives that have been given surrounding even, for example, the 1033 program in the U.S., the program where it gives surplus military equipment to local police departments and other sorts of programs that have embedded the R&D infrastructure of the DOD and local police departments, etc. I think intelligence sharing is important to sort of be proactive in preventing threats from emerging. But I think to the extent that this collaboration creates cultural mixing that winds up blurring the lines between a combatant in the theater of war overseas and a U.S. citizen, I think that is highly problematic. And that's something that's worth investigating and worth sort of interrogating in our modern societies, especially in the U.S., I think it's become very clear to Americans that the highly militarized police is not ideal. But I think there are certain elements that don't really see it as a problem so much because it doesn't really affect them so much. But I think that that notion is also changing. It's unfortunate that it's taken this footage after footage of African-American getting needlessly shot as if they're not humans, as if they're animals at the hands of the police is changing the hearts and minds of Americans. And I think you can see that in the numbers surrounding the sympathies toward Black Lives Matter in the US. And I think this is reflective of patterns of behavior surrounding transformative change that takes place in the US, but also in terms of the relationship between the state and minority communities. That's often been, there's a disjuncture between the realities that they experience and the realities that are felt in terms of the wider population. Shama, thank you so much for providing us with this insightful history and using it as a lens through which we can analyse the continuing problems of racial violence in the US today. It's truly been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. No problem. Thanks, James. Now, one final question. Where can we read more about this? So I think a good place to start would be a forthcoming chapter that I'll be writing in the Journal of International Politics that concerns that last question that we discussed surrounding the nature of militarization in police forces in the U.S. and causes and consequences, etc. I think a lot of the, the works that I cited in my dissertation, I think one of them was uh, Michael Klarman. He's written quite a bit on this topic, and there are a few others that have talked about the history surrounding U.S. Civil War. In my research, the U.S. Civil War, but also um, the, the Second World War and GIs uh, returning home from those theaters of war and the relationship between civil rights. In my research, I've also relied a lot on primary documents. So there were some journals that were written in the 1930s that I relied a lot upon, but I think those those might not be as accessible. But all of that, I think suffice it to say, good place to start if you want to kind of focus on a contemporary view of this topic is this forthcoming chapter that'll be coming out in international politics very soon. That's great. And I can't wait to get you back on the show again. Thanks, Shema. No problem. Thanks, James. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.